the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you Google Romans 12, beyond the passage itself that will come up, you'll also find Pastor Chip Ingram's name. It comes up as one of the many page results. And ironically enough, I think not only the association with uh, Pastor Chip Ingram because of his life verse, but also his life work. You're familiar with, of course, his ministry. He is speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast Living on the Edge, the author of more than a dozen best-selling books, and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church. And as always, Pastor Chip, great to have you on the program. Craig, it's an honor. We go back, wow, 18, 19 years. Well, we were both a lot younger, but still as good looking, I want absolutely, to say. <laughs> absolutely. Your wife was telling me you're looking great. That's it. <laughs> now, Chip, I've got to say something. It's not all that frequent that you can Google a Bible passage and find an association show up on the internet that not only ties into one's life verse, but also one's life work. And that certainly is the case with you with Romans 12, isn't it? Well, it's very interesting because I had no idea that that was true until I'm sitting here thinking, did he just make that up or is that true? Uh, But yeah, I mean, I really believe Romans 12 uh, is followed by 11 chapters of grace and clearly outlines um, in in a way that you can measure what a a genuine, authentic follower, a disciple is of Jesus. And so I, I wrote a book on that, and, you know, then we've created, you know, small group resources for it, and radio messages, and then literally, wow, I mean, thousands and thousands of churches have gone through, you know, that study. And what I love about it, it's, you know, it's not venture, it's not, you know, any denomination, it's not any high-profile pastor, it's just the Bible. And uh, so the Lord's really used it, and I had no idea... Uh, I'm honored that uh, I could be associated with Romans 12. So. You know, it's interesting because so much of that, and not just the entire book, but specifically that passage, focuses on relationships. And at the end of the day, God is really in the relationship business, isn't he? I mean, he, he sent his son to die on a cross to pay the ultimate sacrifice for the entire world, for all of his creation, all of mankind, that through that sacrifice we might be forgiven, be reconciled, so that we could walk in fellowship in relationship with him. Yeah, for those that might be, you know, either driving or listening or jogging or, you know, streaming KFAX and thinking, you know what, I wish I was a little bit more familiar with Romans 12 so I knew what they were talking about. I've taught this a lot, and it has five relationships and basically says the follower of Jesus whose heart is, you know, not none of us are perfect, but is in line with God's heart, the five relationships are God the world system, ourselves, believers and unbelievers. And the, the thumbnail sketch is that an authentic follower of Jesus is surrendered to God, verse 1, separate from the world's values, verse 2, has a sober self-assessment, verses 3 through 8, is serving in love in the body of Christ, uh, verses 9 through 13, and then 14 to 21 talks about 
uh, we as believers uh, are overcoming evil with good supernaturally. So that that's a thumbnail sketch for those that are just feeling a little bit out of it. And those Roman 12 principles on relationships, that was very influential in your coming to Christ, wasn't it? I, I remember reading about you that you grew up kind of as a Midwestern kid in Columbus, Ohio. You were church, but not necessarily at a Bible-believing church, which I always find to be a little bit of a dichotomy. You're a church, but not a Bible-believing one. Tell us about that. Well, I, um, I, I went to a social, non-Bible-believing church that was characterized probably like a lot of People, you know, no one expected anyone to live. Uh, the the sermons were, you know, I can't remember many of them. Um, I think someone got up and read a little passage, but, um, you know, basically I got to be about 16 and thought, I think this is sort of uh, brainwashing to keep kids on the semi-straight and narrow until they get old enough to realize there's not an Easter bunny, there's not a Santa Claus, and no one takes God seriously. And so I just opted out and said, you know, I don't know if there's a God, but if he's like these people, and not that I was any better, but it was just like, man, this is this is lame. And so I just opted out, and, um, you know, I, someone probably made everything. I didn't give much thought. And it was, um, I was uh, a literally basketball junkie gym rat, and I'm not very big, and so I played, I mean, um, without exaggeration, eight nine hours a day, and my dream was to have a you know get a basketball scholarship, and by God's grace, I did. But the football coach, I didn't play football, but I have no idea why. He said, "Hey, there's like 600 of some of the best athletes in Kentucky, West Virginia, and Ohio that are going to be at this camp. Would you like to go and really get you ready for college?" And you know, my job was delayed a week, and I thought, "Shoot!" And he says, "I'll pay your way." I thought, "Sounds better all the time." But he didn't mention too much what FCA stood for, <laughs> Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I'll never forget. And maybe some, some people can really relate to this. I remember going to this camp, and, you know, they give you a T-shirt with a big cross on it. I'm going, uh-oh. And then they gave me a, a, a little Bible that I'd never, never read the Bible, never opened it in my life. And fortunately, a little bit later, it was pretty easy to read. It was like the Good News version. And then people were, like, saying Jesus' name out loud. And I've ne- I mean, it was like... Oh, my, I've been sort of dropped into the land of Jesus freaks. And the word, when Jesus came out of my mouth, it was uh, probably after getting my finger stoved or missing a shot, and I had other things that went along with his name. And it was like, oh, my gosh, what have I got myself into? Did it really seem out of place, too? Because as you describe your early church experience, it sounded like what you did on Sunday for an hour or two yeah. had no bearing on the Monday through Saturday existence all. whatsoever. It was sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, let's get this done quickly. And uh, and so, yeah, I was really out of place. And, and what, But what I do remember, I went, Tom Landry spoke, you know, he was the Cowboys, um, Dallas Cowboys coach at the time. And there was, man, there was like three, four, five, I mean, professional athletes and a bunch of college athletes. And the sports part of it was awesome. And uh, I was not, I did not open that Bible the first two or three days. They were not going to brainwash me. And by about day number three, I just thought either these, how can 600 people be such good actors? Because they seem like they really care. In fact, they seem like they love one another. And I'll never forget walking off the field. It was the wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons and the fullback for uh, University of Illinois. And, I mean, I was drenched in sweat, and I couldn't have been 145 pounds, six foot 145, skinny little white kid. And I'm walking behind these two, and they're having this deep man-to-man conversation. I've never heard a man 
talk to another man at that level. And the one guy, in a, in a very appropriate way, had his arm on the shoulder of the younger fullback. And, and as they walked off, and I couldn't hear all the words, and they didn't even notice me. But it was like it was like this. Now I look back, I didn't know what it was, but it was like the Spirit of God took that snapshot and entered into my heart and said, "This this is what life's really about." And I remember the thought walking behind him is, "I don't know what they have, but I want that." I mean, I was a overachieving student, an overachieving athlete, and no matter how hard I tried or what little awards I won, it was like it's it's empty. So you go for the next one. And it was at that camp I trusted Christ as my Savior, and uh, I wasn't a very, you know, I started reading the Bible, I, I just ate it up, Craig, and and uh, the big moment for me was two weeks later, no one said anything to me, I hid it under my pillow. I mean, I don't think my parents would have got mad, but it would have been like, you know, is he freaking out on it? So I hid it under my pillow, I'd read it in the morning and at night, and two weeks later, I just thought, I don't cuss anymore. And it was like, where did it go? And I, had, I didn't know about renewing your mind. I had no idea what was going on. But just my desires kept changing from the inside out. So that's kind of my story. And while I was at that camp, like after three days, I mean, you know, there's 599 guys opening their Bible for 20 minutes before breakfast. As I look around, it was all outside these rolling hills in Ohio. And, and the peer pressure got to me, so I thought, well, I'll open it. So I open it. Never opened the Bible in my life. And it says, I urge you, therefore, my dear friend, in view of all that God's done for you, that what God really wants is for you to offer yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice. Uh, This is what spiritual service is all about. And don't any longer be conformed to all the standards of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that how you actually live could demonstrate what God's will looks like. It's good, it's acceptable, it's perfect. And then it went on to say, and... And by God's grace, I say to everyone among you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And I mean, it's like a video recorder went on. And I just saw my life, and I realized I always had this question, if God exists, I wonder what he wants. And um, that verse of Romans 12, who would ever dream later, was my beginning of uh, a journey to say, wow, so he's not trying to get my money, and he's not trying to get you know, a bunch of services, and he's not trying me to look and act weird. God wants me. God loves me. And then when I got to the part, don't be conformed, it was like, oh, my gosh, I'm the biggest phony I know. <laughs> you know. And so that's the journey with Romans 12. And, um, you know, years later, God has used that, I think, to help a lot of other people. Pastor Chip Ingram with us today on this edition of Lifeline. Of course, he's Senior Pastor at Venture Christian Church down in Los Gatos. You can get more information about the ministry, by the way, online at venture.cc. That's venture.cc. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit with Pastor Chip Ingram as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Special guest today, he is Pastor Chip Ingram, the author of uh, quite a number of best-selling books, speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast Living on the Edge, and senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. And Chip, just before the break, you were talking about your experience at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp and uh, observing those relationships, true relationships on the horizontal, and by the time you had an opportunity to first crack open the Bible and go to that Romans 12 passage, that must have not just been an eye-opener for you, but a mind-blower in realizing that your 
perception of Christianity was based on religion, religiosity, and all of a sudden now God is opening up this whole new world to you that it's not about religion, it's about relationship. You really hit it. I, I mean, I, I remember hearing people say Jesus' name like he was a real person and like you could know him, and, and then, you know, a guy would teach every morning, but, you know, just like a half hour, and he, he read a paragraph, and then he explained it, but like it made sense. And then people were talking about having a personal relationship with God. I had never heard that phrase before, and I had no idea that a spiritual life demands a spiritual birth. But on the last night of that camp, um, I remember hearing um, Jesus speak, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, um, I'll come into him and live with him, and he with me. And... and uh, I mean, my prayer wasn't very theological, but whatever it means for you to come into my life, I want you to. And this is new to me, but I I actually trust that you died on the cross and you paid for my sin and rose from the dead. And so I don't know all that it means to follow you, but with all my heart, as much as I know, I'm going to follow you. And that was uh, when I trusted Christ as my Savior and, and then had a pretty rocky first couple years uh, in terms of learning to grow in Christ, I felt like I went three steps forward and two steps backward, and, and then met a, uh, a bricklayer that was trained by the Navigators my first week at college, and he took me under his wing, and actually for the next three years was just a mentor and friend, and you know, taught me how to have a relationship with God. It was really powerful. Your, your early passion, the early draw was basketball, as you've articulated. Um, when did the call come about? When did you start to feel that God was pulling you in a in a very different direction? Well, I was I really struggled with uh, what to major in, and every time I grew a little bit, I, you know, when I went to college, I was going to be a lawyer because you know I sort of my mother said you got the gift of the gab, kid, and and I liked to argue, and I did well in debating, and and so I wanted to be a lawyer, have expensive suits, a pretty wife, three kids, an Irish setter, a luxury car, and a station wagon, live in the suburbs, and. Um, and I wanted to make a lot of money. And then, you know, so I get there, and after the first year, I'm thinking, wow, that, that's not a very Christ-like agenda. Not, not, nothing wrong with being a lawyer, but all my motives had nothing to do with God. And so, you know, um, my second year, I think, well, I should, I should do something important with my life. So I'll be uh, the cure for cancer. I've always been a little bit idealistic, so I changed my major to, to, uh, to, uh, to medicine and science. And so I did that for about a year and a half, and you know, I'm cutting open frogs and doing all this stuff, and my sister's a nurse, and I'm realizing, man, I don't, I don't like this at all. And so as life went on, I kept growing spirits. I thought, well, you know, if I even the cure from cancer, they'll, they'll, they'll die, and um, and you know, what about what about their interior life? So I completely swung around and changed my major to education and psychology. <laughs> so I had to take all. You know, I think I ended up with like 160 hours in undergraduate. Took about 20. Uh, 25 a semester. I mean, I mean, I mean, it was nutty. I think 23 actually was the highest one, because I kept changing majors. And um, in long story, I think God was was preparing me. And then afterwards, I teamed up with that bricklayer. I taught school. I coached basketball. Did Bible studies. I never dreamed if there was a thousand jobs, dream 1,001 would be a pastor. I just thought, no way. I'm not holy enough. I'm not smart enough. And besides, most of the pastors I've met, um, you know, I could just never see myself doing that. 
And so during the summers, I, I got recruited to play on a Christian basketball team, and we uh, it was sort of an international version of Athletes in Action, Greg. And so we played in two summers every single country in South America except Uruguay. played every one of their national teams, selection teams, a, a game every day, shared Christ at halftime. And God gave me the opportunity to lead scores and scores of people to Christ, and then I saw all these needs around the world, and I just had no idea the world was like that. And I went to grad school because I was going to be—I wanted to be a major college coach, and so I was in grad school. And we had a break, and an Australian team uh, that was associated with the organization—they—they uh, they were great guys, but they weren't that good in basketball back then. So they needed a point guard and a big guy, and the point guard uh, pulled a hamstring. And they got a call and said, is there any way you could join this Australian team in the Orient and play throughout all the Orient for about six weeks? And um, So I did in the middle of grad school, and again I saw the world. And um, so I, I was actually a school teacher and a coach, and we started a little Bible study off this campus like we did in, the, in college days, and it went from three to like you know, 100, 150 people. And everyone, people are starting to ask me, to, will you come and teach at our, our youth group or at this camp? I'm going, wait a second, I'm a school teacher. Why, why would you be asking me? And, uh, you know, uh, little by little by little, I didn't have like a lightning bolt. Uh, all I've, I came to is like, man, I'm getting up early to spend time with God, and I drive 40 minutes, and then I have an early morning basketball practice, then I coach, then I have an afternoon basketball practice, then I go back on the college campus to lead this ministry, and... You know, like something dawned on me and the people around me. Uh, seems like you really get excited about going up on the campus and ministering to your kids. Have you, you ever thought of doing this full time? And I thought, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know. And by the way, then the thought of I'm going to have to go back to school another three or four years. <laughs> you know, I've already been to college and grad school. And then it was just honestly, it was like if you've ever been in a thick forest and been even maybe a little bit lost, and you see a little ray of light, and you move toward it, and the more you move toward it, it gets lighter, lighter, lighter. Then you get the edge, and there's a meadow, and you're kind of out in the meadow, and you, you kind of big, deep relief. You go, oh, wow. That's what it was like for me. It just, I kept just doing the little things God showed me, and pretty soon I was in this meadow, and it was like, okay, Chip, you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to coach my team. And, and you know, it wasn't even be a pastor. It was just, I just want you to coach my team. And I thought, well, okay, well, then you need to get prepared. So off the seminary I went with a wife and two kids, and the rest is history. And the irony is, in a real sense, that passion for coaching really has never left, rather. It's just shifted. You know, it strikes me, the Word tells us that God will give us the desires of our heart. Of course, He also wants our heart to be focused and our desire to be focused on Him. How interesting that that sort of came back full circle. The only difference is you're, you're, you're coaching in a bigger game where the stakes are really real, aren't they? They are, and I think it's really interesting. I had, um, I was always a student of the game, and I, I had an amazing college coach, uh, who who actually later came to Christ, which was very, you know, I shared Christ my whole journey, and I, I don't want to get off on this too much, but it was so interesting. It was probably 15 years after I graduated from college, or maybe 20, and I got a phone call from a guy, and he said, hey, Chip, this is Tom Ackerman. I said, "Not, yeah, Coach Ackerman. I said, Coach, what are you doing? He goes, well, in the story, he uh, lost a grandson to leukemia, and was really grappling with life. He said, I went to a Christian bookstore and I saw a book with your name on it. 
And he said, I shook my head. And he said, you know, he said, there can't be too many Chip Ingrams. So I picked it up and wondered, and I looked at the little picture, and I thought, that's that guy that played for me all those years ago. And um, he uh, read that book and came to know the Lord, and we've since kind of had some great conversation and time. But um, I, I really think uh, it, 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 a coach is someone who knows that, you know, coaches don't win games. I've, I've never coached a game where I made the winning shot or even scored a point. And I think as a pastor, when you read Ephesians 4, you realize our job is to equip God's people to do the work of service. And so, uh, you know, the, the heroes in our church are not any of the staff. It's the key lay people that he's using at Google and Facebook and, you know, Microsoft and on the website and at stay-at-home moms. But uh, they, they have networks. They are the people that are changing the world. And so that coaching mentality has really helped me be more of an equipper rather than, um, I think, you know, we as pastors, we always have a temptation to unconsciously become the spotlight. And I think Scripture's clear, is we're the shepherds to help the sheep uh, do the work. I mean, who can talk to a doctor, me or another doctor? Who can help a a woman who's been raped, me or a woman who's been raped. I mean, who can help an executive understand the pressures and demands and God's power, me or an executive? So, you know, our job is to help those people uh, just become all God wants them to be. And so it's pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting team to coach. Pastor Chip Ingram with us today, senior pastor at Venture Christian Church in Los Gatos. Information, by the way, on the web at venture.cc. That's venture.cc. Chip, of course, is also the speaker on the nationally syndicated broadcast, Living on the Edge, the author of more than, oh, a dozen or more best-selling books. We're talking a bit about, uh, well, not just his work, his ministry, his life verse, but most importantly, uh, this notion that God, at the end of the day, is really about drawing us in, compelling us into relationship. We'll pause on that point, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program. Pastor Chip Ingram is with us today. Of course, you know him as Speaker of Living on the Edge and Senior Pastor at Venture Christian Church down in Los Gatos, where he's served as Senior Pastor there since 2007. And it's interesting, you know, we're, we're talking about your background in sports and coaching. And I think as any co- coach would say, at the Olympic level or even a kid just playing, uh, you know, on the gridiron or playing basketball at, at high school, uh, you need to be committed, and you need to be all in. If you're going to win, you have to be all in. Is that also true in your experience in terms of our relationship with God? Does God want us all in in our relationship with him? You know, Craig, if I would say the one singular thing, and I have thousands and thousands of experiences and emails and letters uh, to um, kind of back up. This isn't just anecdotal or preach-speak. Um when I've taught Romans 12, verse 1 says, I urge you, therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And the word offer there is a, is a point in time. And it's the same picture of like in the Old Testament when someone would bring a, a bull or a, or a goat. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, it is a picture of surrender. And it's it's... It's a surrender that says, all that I am and all that I have is yours. It's, I forgive the gambling analogy, but it's the best picture, if, if you've ever watched Texas Hold'em, is someone takes the chips and pushes them all to the center 
and says, I'm all in. And that's when the action really starts because, you know, they're going to start dealing some cards, and it's either going to be really bad or really wonderful. And God is waiting. I think what I can tell you is I've met people who've been Christian five years, 25 years, 30 years, people that are stuck. They hear Romans 12:1 and realize on a certain day at a certain time, I push all the chips, my future, my money, my hobbies, my work, my kids, my wife, my singleness, everything. It's all yours. I will do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever. I am completely surrendered. Now, it's scary. It's crazy scary, and it ought to be. But the, the reason you can do it is God is good. He's a sun. He's a shield. He gives grace and glory. No good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. I think the great, great majority of Christians never experience the good will of God, the, bl- the full blessing of God, because, you know, if there's sort of, uh, it's like kind of hardening of the spiritual arteries, the blood, the grace can't flow through. And what I can tell you is when people make that real commitment, uh, I, w- I came to Christ in 1972, but it was um, 1974, two years later, at Penn State University, understanding the Lordship of Christ, mm. that I went all in. And I will tell you the power I experienced what happened in my life. And I have just, again, thousands of emails of people who said, you know, I haven't, I've been a Christian, I go to church, but I go to alcohol addiction, I got a sex addiction, you know, I've struggled with my anger, I've got this issue, this issue, then I went all in. And by the way, warning, most always it's harder and sometimes worse before it gets better, because God begins to work and test, and the enemy doesn't want to let you go. But those people who surrender, wow, they're the Christians who live like Christians. They're the Christians that have this joy that the Bible talks about. And, um, I mean, in Jesus' words, you know, he says, you cannot be, I mean, think of this, you cannot be my disciple, Luke chapter 9, unless you deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And what he was saying, you know, an instrument of death to your agenda, your way, your control. And then he tells them why. For what will it profit a man if you gain the whole world and yet profit it, and, but lose your soul? And um, so anyway, I think it's just critical that... Surrender, though I put it this way, surrender is the channel. This is a positive way. Surrender is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. And if I have time, just one quick word picture. I have this picture of this like ocean or this huge lake, this beautiful lake in heaven, and there's this PVC pipe. I mean, it's grace, it's blessing, it's encouragement, it's this great self-identity, it's all the good that God wants to do lavish in this pvc pipe it comes all the way down from heaven it's invisible but it's connected right in the back of my head and god wants to pour this grace out and his blessing out and reveal himself and do amazing things in me and through me but i have this little switch where i can turn it on or off and and i think you know you're connected you're a believer but i think a lot of believers open that valve just a tiny tiny bit and usually when they really, really, the reason people experience God so much, like when their kid's in ICU, guess what? They're surrendered. Oh, mm. God, right? But you know what? You can open that, Romans 12, one moment, and say, God, pour in that grace. I'll do whatever. And if God is really good, it's the smartest, wisest, best decision that anyone ever makes. And uh, we just confuse good with easy. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's easy, but um, I just have to 
I think I've got to preach in here. Forgive me. <laughs> no, that's good. Do, do, do you think that on that point of surrender that we don't surrender because we don't trust and we don't trust because we don't know him? Absolutely. Uh, you hit it. I, I, you know what? I'm not going to repeat that. I can't say it better. That's exactly right. We're going to let listeners percolate on that thought. Hey, let's, uh, let's switch gears for a moment. Um, every pastor knows this. You know this. We all know this. Um, we are working here in one of the most challenging mission fields anywhere on planet Earth. And ironically, a, a cross-section of what the mission field looks like. Name a culture, a people group, a language, and you'll find it here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, uh, people that feel a call to be a missionary can certainly get their experience under belt here in the San Francisco Bay Area because as they prepare for the mission field, they find that they are right here at home in the mission field. So helping pastors recharge their batteries, um, being able to preach from a, a full heart, uh, I think is critically important, isn't it? Because there are challenges that are faced here by preachers in the pulpit here that perhaps are not seen anywhere else, certainly in the United States. Uh, you're, you're actually really, really right. We had about 60% of our pastors came from the Bay Area, about 40% from all over the country. And, you know, we've all been to a lot of conferences. And so we, we, we did this one a little bit different, where rather than just coming and hearing people talk, 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 we really have built in some time. We've got some um, great breakout times. But, like, I, I get with a group of people and say, okay, how do you use preaching to make disciples? And it's a small enough group. We're, like, 30, 40 guys. We just really talk, what are your biggest challenges? And then I, I ask all the guys when they come, I don't want you to come speak and then go back in some room somewhere. Okay, we're here. These people should, you know, they, you know, as one guy wrote, he goes, it was so refreshing to hear people that, you know, you guys have a pretty significant platform that have all the same normal normal struggles in me. You know, how do you maintain balance at home? When and how do you prepare? You know, I mean, I can get great information about preaching on the internet. What I can't get is relationships and connections. And um, and we have people of all kind of ethnic backgrounds. I mean, it's just. Um, in fact, you would be surprised. I think some of our services are probably at least half multicultural, whether Indian, Asian, Indonesian, um, Korean. Uh, we actually have to, are you ready for this adventure? We have to translate our 11 o'clock service in Mandarin and Korean simultaneously. Isn't that great? <laughs> it is. It's, it's God. It's the hand of God. Hey, Pastor, it's been a delight visiting with you. As always, we appreciate both your time, your your passion for uh, the Word, your love for God that just oozes out of you. And hey, if you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area, you're looking for a church home, we certainly invite you to uh, check out the ministry. It, it is broad and deep and wide, as you will experience. You can begin that introduction by uh, checking out the website, VentureChristian.cc. Listen to a lot of Pastor Chip's sermons and teachings, of course, part of the radio ministry as well. At Living on the Edge and some great resources there, especially if you want to dive deeper as we began the conversation today into what it means to be a Romans 12 Christian. Check it out again on the web at venture.cc. Well, Pastor Chip Ingram, as always, a real privilege to get a chance to uh, spend some time in fellowship with you and look forward to doing it again soon. Well, thank you, Craig. Thanks for being a uh, steady, stable light at KFAX. Um, right here in the Bay Area. We love you guys. We appreciate you. And thanks for the honor of being on. Thanks for the time. There's Pastor Chip Ingram. Again, details on Venture Church. You can get details at venture.cc. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's 
fairly common. Folks go out, and because it's their old alma mater or they're aware of uh, maybe a school that's gotten some good rankings somewhere, somehow, that they think uh, they're doing the right thing, or because it has a tuition that begins at, you know, $21,000 per week, that it must be the right place to send their kids. Because, you know, the more we spend for a car, we typically get a better quality car, better quality house. Is that necessarily true, though, when it comes to a better quality education? Well, my guest in this segment of the program might uh, beg to differ with that. In fact, we're going to talk about how to choose the right college. There is a website, by the way, that you need to know, jot down, and uh, bookmark called collegeguide.org. that gives you insights on to some of the best and worst colleges of the U.S., the reasons why, and most importantly, it's not always what you think they ought to be. Now, if you're someone that typically picks up a copy of U.S. News and World Report, a magazine to which I subscribed for many years, and you think that that's the single place to get information, let me dispel that myth right now. John Zimrick joins us on the program. And, John, talk to us a bit about the latest report now, a look at choosing the right college that gives some insights that parents, in fact, uh, might run kind of contrary to what they've otherwise heretofore believed about certain schools. Yes, our emphasis is on showing up what's really going on at these colleges. We're an organization, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, that's existed since 1953. It was founded by William F. Buckley um, immediately after he wrote his famous book, God and Man at Yale, where uh, he was disturbed by just how anti-American and anti-God he found his experience at Yale University, which he would have expected to be a kind of bastion of, of Christianity and patriotism, given that it was one of the founding colleges of the United States. But he was quite surprised at what he found. So the Intercollegiate Studies Institute was founded as a kind of support group for students of religious faith, of patriotic values, uh, committed to market economy and to traditional values. And it connects students and faculty across the country as committed to those things. We use our co- network of contacts associated with all these schools to tell us what's really going on on the campuses. And we use that to produce our biannual 1,000-page report on the leading 130 colleges in the country. Some of the information that you're presenting really, as we say, kind of runs contrary to to popular belief. Uh, a lot of the, the, the popular rankings, I, I would suspect, are based on the name, the prestige, the amount of money that they're charging. But that's not always indicative of the quality of instruction, is it? No, not at all. In fact, uh, sometimes it's almost the inverse of that. You'll find that at the most prestigious and expensive schools, they're paying the professors primarily to do research and to come up with elaborate and sometimes esoteric academic studies that only two or three hundred people in the whole world will ever read. Now, that's fine in the natural sciences or in engineering, but in literature, really, do we need the 400th book in the last two years on Shakespeare? Or even worse, do we need books on really esoteric subjects such as, like, lesbian influence on graphic novels? Um, well, you'll find that the best professors at these schools often spend most of their time on research while teaching is relegated to graduate teaching assistants, you know, people working on their Ph.D. All right. That said, one of the, the things that you outline inside of this survey, and again, a lot of the information available on the web at collegeguide.org, is this idea that some of the best-known so-called prestigious schools turn out to be train wrecks. What do you mean by that? By train wreck, we mean a place that has a lot of potential, that has many millions of dollars in resources, that is squandering them on political activism, 
or on esoteric subjects or on uh, building elaborate, comfortable student lounges so that the students can, can treat the school like, like a, a resort. Um, and, and several schools we identified, uh, Wesleyan University in Connecticut, which you know might sound like a nice Methodist school, but in fact is entirely secular and one of the most anti-Christian and, and, and I have to say um, licentious colleges I've ever heard of. Not only are the dormitories co-ed or the, and the bathrooms co-ed, even the dorm rooms are co-ed. Every dorm room can potentially be co-ed, so couples can hook up on the college's dime in the college's dormitory. And the school, uh, the school is a gay lesbian student center that has a lending library of, of really sadistic pornography. It, it's just staggering what goes on at a school named for a man like John Wesley, and that parents are paying forty thousand dollars a year so that their kids can be exposed to this. Why does a lot of this information tend to elude some of the more traditional resources? And I don't want to pick on U.S. News and World Report, but why does some of this backstory about, uh, you know, not just the, the, the rankings in terms of the caliber of education, but the, the intellectual atmosphere, the quality of instruction, student life, the, the, what goes on behind the scenes? Why does so much of this tend to sort of elude some of the perhaps better known ranking systems? Well, because they don't have an overt philosophy of education. They're just looking at the numbers. They're trying to be value neutral. And in that way, they're accepting the kind of relativistic philosophy that underlies so much of education. We have an overt educational philosophy. It is the traditional liberal arts mission that helped create the American college system that uh, John Henry Newman talked about in the idea of a university, um, that the Jesuits used in forming their colleges, that the Protestant reformers used in forming Yale and Harvard and Princeton. We're willing to say, yes, we choose one set of values over another. This set of values seems to us more in consonance with the Western tradition. So we are going to choose schools that do a better job of reflecting that tradition. All right. With all that said, you're ranking everything from the intellectual atmosphere, quality of the instruction. Uh, do, you, do you take into consideration the political bent of the school as well? We do. We, we, we look for schools where there is not a uniform, monolithic, typically liberal or feminist or multicultural atmosphere that would make conservative or Christian students feel unwelcome. Um, it's an really widespread problem that colleges are just not wholesome places where you can feel free to express your ideas and, and the values you live by. And, and in the universities are supposed to be a place of free exchange, but they've increasingly become places of indoctrination. So we highlight schools where they aren't necessarily conservative or Christian, but they are open. They, they have academic freedom. Students can feel free to express their views without fear of being graded down or expelled or prosecuted by the school for, for, for saying what they believe. And that's, a, that's not as universal as you would hope, that kind of academic freedom. Academic freedom tends to cut just one way at most colleges. It cuts the left. There's also another uh, kind of a monster lurking in the background here in the room that a lot of folks tend to kind of ignore, and that is the notion that uh, quite often we, we fail to count the real cost. We look at sort of, okay, this is what the tuition is going to be. You also take a look at uh, the average expense that students will have in terms of student loans and the ongoing indebtedness too, don't you? I think that, yes, the most important number to look at, because, you know, a lot of schools have high tuition and a lot of financial aid, and they cancel out. 
the thing to look at is the average student loan debt of a recent graduate. That tells you that's where the rubber hits the road. The average American student graduates with a debt of $25,000. That's more than most of them will earn upon graduation. That's such a weight to be carrying. That's, such a, that's the kind of thing that slows down people's attempts to form families or to get married. It certainly prevents them from owning homes and, and starting a nest egg. So that's the kind of challenge we'd rather see people not have to face as recent college graduates. Folks want to get more information. Uh, we've mentioned about the website, collegeguide.org. Right, and the book we published, Choosing the Right College, which is available from Amazon.com and at major bookstores. Excellent. Again, Choosing the Right College, an invaluable resource, and again, through Amazon.com, the usual suspects as well. Details, too, on the web at collegeguide.org. And our thanks to John Zamrick for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.